Aloha. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. Summertime is upon us, and just when everybody thought it's a great idea to go out, kids, adults, get some exercise, have some fun, go out and play, there's a couple of things that can happen every now and then. And we certainly know that people can have a lot of different injuries and other sorts of things that occur when they're out there exercising, muscle cramps and all sorts of stuff. So today we're going to talk about what are some of the ways that you can avoid that. So we've got in the studio today, Sam Lee. He is a certified athletic trainer at Hawaii Baptist Academy. And we also have on the phone an upcoming guest at the Hawaii Athletic Association Annual Symposium. We've got Dr. Kevin Miller on the line, and he's calling in from Michigan University. He's a heat illness management expert. So thank you, gentlemen, for joining me today. You're welcome. All right. So, uh, Dr. Miller, tell me a little bit about you've got some expertise in exertional heat stroke and what happens when people tend to be doing a little bit too much activity and maybe overstress and overtax their body. What is that process and what happens? Right. So in an exertional heat stroke situation, usually there's a couple of things going on. Most of them relate back to people doing exercise that they're unaccustomed to. And this causes their body temperature to increase faster than their body can get rid of the heat, and as a result, they develop dangerous body temperatures, and they can start to go into organ failure, which we would classify this whole cascade of events of exertional heat stroke. So what would be the normal way that if you're exercising, your body gets rid of heat? Uh, Normally, our body gets rid of heat via sweating. So when we say, I'm going to go work up a sweat, that's actually a way that our internal temperature, which might increase from the activity, can actually lower itself to make sure that the body and the organs are safe. So if you're, if you're doing an activity you mentioned that you're not accustomed to, so maybe if you're not a runner and you decide to go running, maybe at a really hot time of the day, or if you're a student or you're an athlete and you're doing some summer training and it's a little bit more than you were doing during the year, those are some of the situations where this could potentially happen? Uh, correct, and sweating is a great way to get rid of heat, but uh, sweating is only effective if the sweat is actually allowed to evaporate off of the skin. In a situation where you have high heat and especially high humidity, the body can't evaporate sweat into the air because the air is already saturated with water, and so... If it's a very humid day, sweating's ability to cool yourself off is going to be severely limited. That's where we would say uh, you need to adjust your time with your run or the intensity of your run or what you're actually wearing because sweating is no longer going to help you as much as if it was a cooler or even better drier day. So in that case, you said adjust what you're wearing. What would be the most appropriate clothing? You know, when we talk about moisture wicking type of clothing that takes sweat off of the body or some other type of, you know, a lot of people want to go running. You know, guys might run shirtless because they feel like that's easier and cooler for them. Which would be preferred? Right. Your your basic standard workout apparel is going to be fine for most of your recreational runners. Uh, Where we really start to worry about exertional heat stroke is in athletes who have to wear protective equipment like American football players, even lacrosse players, where they're carrying a 
about 10 pounds of extra weight with them, and they're wearing these heavy plastic materials that don't allow the body to evaporate sweat. But for your average recreational runner, uh, normal workout apparel should be just fine. So, Sam, you work as an athletic trainer, and you help out with some of the athletes locally who are dealing with some of these issues that Dr. Miller's talking about, some of the concerns that people may have about their equipment or their gear. What do you see in your practice? Do you see some of the football teams do summer training, and are they wearing all the gear? Do they have sort of an abbreviated outfit? What are they doing? Right. So here in Hawaii, we have uh, pretty much done away with most of spring football with the pads. But um, they will be starting up probably around mid-July this year. Uh, They will have a time of uh, acclimatization before they start putting on the full pads. But our history, I've worked as an athletic trainer in the Hawaii high schools for over 20 years. The history has been that such that we've had to help educate uh, the coaches and the athletes. And I'm really glad of uh, Dr. Miller coming. Uh, Glad to have you on the phone, Dr. Miller, and also to uh, have him come continue to educate our athletic trainers. We know some of these things already, but there's always so much more to know. And just in terms of what he mentioned about how does a human body uh, cool down? Uh, I used to ask that question of all my football players. I don't have a football team now. I have mainly a lot of cross-country runners. But with the football boys, it was always a almost a, a, a tradition that I would have them, I would ask them, how does the human body cool itself? And I would, and they would say, well, you sweat. And I would say, you're only half right. And the other half of the uh, answer is what Dr. Miller just said. You have to have a way to evaporate that sweat. So if we were to put you in a box, are you cooling off? Or if we were to put you in a lot of protective gear, are you cooling off? Uh, And so um, all of that's right on, and and we're just looking forward to more information uh, as to how to deal with those kind of things in a tropical environment. So, Dr. Miller, you mentioned that you have to be careful because of that humidity, and it gets pretty humid here in the islands, particularly right around that July, August, September time. So what are some things that people who live in a humid environment could maybe do to help promote that evaporation? Well, a couple things for heat stroke prevention, and as Sam said, uh, the NC2A and a lot of high schools in the U.S. have adopted acclimatization guidelines. So rather than uh, secondary school athletes showing up on day one and putting on full gear and resuming a normal high-intensity practice, uh, our recommendation is to gradually acclimate these players to the high-intensity activity, gradually prolonging the exercise durations, uh, gradually getting them back into the swing of wearing full gear. And so there's a break-in period where you're not allowed to go full speed, full pads in the hottest time of the year. And so we usually will give these players at least a week of trying to acclimate their bodies to these hot and humid conditions so they're ready for the competitive season because you really don't want to wear all of that stuff in high humidity because you won't be able to evaporate your sweat as well. And so you want to give your body time to make these changes internally to help overcome some of those challenges. So the body can actually adapt over such a short period of time, about a week you mentioned? Yeah, gradually uh, over 7 to 10 days, we actually will start to see the body produce physiological changes. Start As you start sweating earlier, you sweat more, you help retain some of the body's sodium so you're not losing as much sodium in your sweat, and all of these things really help your body uh, take care of itself when it's exercising in the heat. 
Now, we mentioned that some of the gear causes problems, but as far as your standard type of clothing that you might wear, a regular cotton shirt, is that any different than something that is sort of the the mesh or the the type of apparel that says it's going to take away sweat? Yes, there's been quite a bit of research on the different types of workout apparel, and some companies have been very good at producing different types of workout gear that will help you to evaporate sweat more efficiently. And so you would want to wear uh, just normal workout apparel. You can get into some very uh, non-economical workout apparel that for the recreational runner is probably not necessary. For most people, if they wear your standard kind of blended clothing, cotton tends to get very high in moisture and absorb lots of sweat, so uh, that tends not to breathe very well. So if you use some of these newer kind of mixture clothing, you'll be fine. But for most people, when they're doing recreational activity and running in the heat, if you listen to your body, if you feel yourself getting hot or you feel yourself getting very tired, just slow down, take a break, get some fluids into your body, and you should just be fine. What we see with exertional heat stroke is there's a very large psychological component as well as all the environmental factors. And so in marathon runners, for example, uh, we see people who try to maintain a pace that they are not accustomed to, or toward the end of the race, they try and have a pacing partner come with them that they try and keep up with, where they've already run a significant portion of the race, and now you have someone who is who has fresh legs that you are trying to keep up with, and so the brain says, I just got to keep up with my partner until I'm done with the race, and then we see these athletes collapse as soon as they hit the finish line because then the brain says, okay, now I can finally stop. And so you combine all of these different situational factors, and it's a recipe for exertional heat stroke. All right, we're going to talk about that again in just a few moments. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. You're listening to The Body Show. We've got Dr. Kevin Miller on the line. He's a heat illness management expert. And we have Sam Lee in the studio, a certified athletic trainer at Hawaii Baptist Academy. When we come back, we're going to talk some more about how to stay safe when we're outdoors and exercising and what are the best economical things to wear. We'll be right back. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, whose contributors help Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to the St. Andrews Schools, which includes the Priory School for Girls, the Prep for Boys, and Queen Emma Preschool. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here with Sam Lee. He's a certified athletic trainer, Hawaii Baptist Academy. And we have a guest on the phone calling in from the mainland, Dr. Kevin Miller. Now you're working through Michigan University. Is that right? Uh, I'm with Central Michigan University. Central Michigan. Fabulous. And you're a heat illness management expert. So right before the break, we were talking about some of the clothing and apparel. And for the average person, probably not a big deal. For the elite athlete, as you mentioned, it may be something they have to take a look at. And, you know, you brought up a very interesting point, the psychological factor. You mentioned marathon runners. And sometimes on television, we'll see people who sort of make it to the finish line and then collapse or seem to have some other problem. Not everybody who does that has heat stroke. They may just be physically exhausted, but how would someone be able to tell the difference between true heat stroke and just somebody who just finally made it to the finish line and they're tired? Great question. So in order to have a diagnosis of exertional heat stroke, there are really two things that you need. The first is a body temperature that is above 105 degrees Fahrenheit. And then the second is 
central nervous system dysfunction. And so that can look like several different things from irritability to nausea to extreme fatigue, dizziness, uh, all of these different types of symptoms that could be indicative of uh, possible central nervous system problems. So you combine those two things and you have a diagnosis of exertional heat stroke. And Sam, have you seen this when you're dealing with some of the some of the people that you take care of when you're attending some of these events? Yes, uh, especially early in the season in the fall, uh, being that maybe the kids are not uh, the student athletes are not as prepared as they'd like to be. Even though you know our coaches do a great job of that, um, once they're exerting themselves hard in that very first race, uh, very first race of the season this year, we had somebody who we believe went down with uh, a heat illness. Uh, that we needed to take care of right there at the finish line. So what do you do when that happens, Sam? Well, I had the good fortune, <clears throat> I guess, uh, of hearing Dr. Miller at both our district meeting uh, in uh, this past spring or last spring, as well as uh, in the summertime at our national convention. And we're talking about different ways that we can help cool the body uh, for the last two, three years at least uh, at almost every cross-country meet that I see. We've got a large tub of uh, cold water, ice water, so that we're ready to dunk them into there to try to bring down their uh, body temperature. We want to cool first and then transport to the hospital second. So you start doing the treatment initially right there in the field Mm -hmm. so that you don't have to wait for the wonderful work of EMS, but sometimes it could be delayed for a variety of reasons, and you're right there. So you've got supplies, you're ready, you start the process, and then they get transported to the hospital. Correct. Now, um, you know, we never know for sure if the how long it'll take, if there's traffic, is the EM, is the ambulance air conditioned, or is it cool enough, um, as opposed to just cold water all around them. The other issue, which uh, I'm going to go ahead and let uh, Dr. Miller talk a little bit more about, too, is just uh, how do we measure that temperature of that body uh, that person in peril, because we need to know, you know, if if those central nervous system signs are showing up, is it because of a heat illness or is it because of something else? And we would want to get uh, accurate temperature reading on that. That's a real important thing, Dr. Miller. How are we checking temperatures? Right, and so this is what comes down to a very, very important question because heat stroke can mimic several other very serious. Uh, potentially life-threatening conditions and could even be indicative of things like concussion. And so the way that we separate exertional heat stroke from these other types of conditions is by taking someone's rectal temperature. And at first it seems a little kind of scary to say rectal temperature, but from the research we know that there is no other body site that is as accurate or valid uh, to take an exercising person's body temperature. And so when we have athletic trainers take rectal temperature, it's because that is the absolute best practice for determining somebody's internal temperature during exercise. And so we don't want to substitute that with something that we know is inaccurate, like oral temperature, which can be impacted by how fast somebody is breathing, or their ear temperature, which can be impacted by if they're wearing a helmet or the temperature outside. And so we want to make sure that we get a rectal temperature so we can know exactly what their internal body temperature is, so then we can make an accurate diagnosis. Well, and that's really the key because if you're going to have treatment that is going to vary based on the parameters that you're setting for the diagnosis, you have to have accurate information. I mean, I know in my office, if we just check a blood pressure and somebody who's not good at checking it, 
gets the wrong numbers, I could prescribe hypertensive medication based on that. So we have to really be careful to make sure all the staff know how to check it. And in your case, athletic trainers know the best correct way to get the temperature. And not comfortable. On the other hand, it's not painful. And if it gets you a better diagnosis, that's the way you do it. So Right. Just... And the, the scary thing about the other body types, like oral temperature and ear temperature, even armpit temperature, is these temperatures we know from the research, tend to be lower than what our actual body temperature is. And so that's the absolute scariest thing about taking somebody's body temperature at a site other than rectal is because if you were to take it somewhere else, you would say that their body temperature is cooler than what it actually is, and that would make you do an incorrect diagnosis, and then you would use the wrong treatment like ice bags or putting the person in the shade and that type of thing. And internally those people are cooking and so you want to try and get them cooled within about 30 minutes of their collapsing. Because as you mentioned earlier it could lead to organ failure. This isn't just hey you might have cramping or something. This is serious medical complications that could affect you. Exactly. All right. So there are some other things that happen like muscle cramps and and things you mentioned being careful with salt levels because sometimes the body will naturally regulate the amount of salt that it releases releases in sweat to make sure that you're not in a position where you have low sodium in your body. What are the common causes of muscle cramps? So muscle cramping, again, is a condition that we're seeing more research on. This is an area that I have spent a lot of my early career studying, and so the majority of the scientific literature would actually say that muscle cramping during exercise is related to changes in, again, our central nervous system. So very much like exertional heat stroke has a central nervous system component, so does muscle cramping. And so for the last 100 years or so, people have been led to believe that dehydration or electrolyte loss is the reason for cramping during exercise, but a lot of the new science coming out from my laboratory and other people's laboratory is actually showing that when you take dehydration out of the equation, people actually don't have a higher susceptibility to cramping. So then what's the best way to prevent it? Well, that is a tricky question because, again, a lot of the research would say there's lots of different ways to get to a muscle cramp. So think of muscle cramping almost like pasta sauce. You have a hundred different varieties of pasta sauce, and there's lots of different ways that you can make pasta sauce. And so for uh, you and I, we might have three factors that are different between you and I that lead us to muscle cramping. Uh, And those factors might even change depending on the environmental conditions or our internal physiology from day to day. And so what we know tends to affect Uh, people is a prior history of cramping, for example. That tends to be one of the biggest predictors of whether or not you will have future cramps. And if you do develop a muscle cramp during exercise, your likelihood of getting a second cramp and a third cramp is also much higher because now your central nervous system is primed for more excitability and therefore more muscle cramping. And how does that relate to the hyponatremia or low sodium levels? Great question. So hyponatremia is a deadly condition that is simply low blood sodium. And so, again, we've had these last hundred years where people have been led to believe that dehydration is the cause of cramping. And so if I believe that cramping is caused by dehydration and I get a cramp, 
then I think to myself, well, I must be dehydrated. And so I go to my refrigerator and I drink some water and I continue my run, or I go get a sports drink and I drink that and I continue my run and I get another muscle cramp. So I can think to myself, oh, I must still be dehydrated. So I keep on drinking these fluids. And sports drinks and water, these are what we would call hypotonic fluids, which simply means they have very little sodium in them in comparison to your blood. And so when you drink them, what happens is your blood sodium actually decreases. And so you actually think of it like diluting your blood. And so when you drink large volumes of fluid because you're trying to hydrate yourself to prevent cramping, that's where we see blood sodium start to fall. And that's where people can develop this condition of hyponatremia. And that certainly doesn't feel good. And it can cause a lot of other neurologic signs and symptoms if it gets severe enough. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. You're listening to The Body Show. When we come back, we're going to talk more about facts and fables about these muscle cramps. We're here with Sam Lee. He's a certified athletic trainer at Hawaii Baptist Academy and the president of the Hawaii Athletic Trainers Association. And we have Dr. Kevin Miller on the line. He's at Central Michigan University, heat illness management expert. We'll be right back. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors PCAT, Pacific Center for Advanced Technology Training, Moyer Financial, and Kaiser Permanente. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. We're talking with Sam Lee. He's a certified athletic trainer. And we're also talking with Dr. Kevin Miller. He's calling in from Central Michigan University, heat illness management expert. And so we're talking a little bit about muscle cramps. Now, you know, I think a muscle cramp says, hey, if I'm running or if I'm doing some activity, it's just my calves. Sam, you see some folks who do a lot of different sports, what are the most common locations of muscle cramps? Again, very similar to what you just said. A lot of it happens down in the calf muscles. Uh, Sometimes if it gets worse, it may go up into other parts of the body, maybe the hamstrings, maybe the quad muscles. Uh, Generally, that's what we see. Um, Maybe once or twice in my career have I ever seen it get pretty bad beyond that in terms of full body cramps. But generally, the calf muscles, uh, maybe the quads and hamstrings. And you're also dealing with cross-country. Yes. So these uh, are the that, runners. Okay, so that, that may... Cross-country and track. Cross-country and track. <clears throat> it, may, it may help to define what sort of troubles that you might see. Uh, what are you know, the most common myth that people think about with muscle cramps? I think, Dr. Miller, you mentioned earlier that, hey, if I feel as though I'm, I'm having cramps, I'll just drink more fluids, and I think I'm helping my sodium, but potentially I could be making it worse. What are, what's the biggest myth outside of that that people have about muscle cramps? I think one of the most popular ones that I've come across with athletes is the eating bananas myth or any other food that's very high in potassium. Again, it comes back to the belief that uh, dehydration or electrolytes uh, lead to muscle cramping. And so our primary electrolytes that we tend to lose in sweat are sodium, potassium, and chloride. And so uh, when I was playing soccer growing up, I was always told by my coach that I need to eat more bananas. And because of the high potassium in those bananas, I would help save off some of my muscle cramps. And in reality, that doesn't work. No, it does not work. So some of the data from my lab would suggest that when you eat bananas, uh, even up to uh, three bananas, it takes about 30 minutes to actually start to see changes in your 
blood potassium levels. And so if you have a muscle cramp and you eat three bananas, it just takes lots of time for that fluid to be broken down in your stomach and then absorbed into your body and then circulated into your blood to your cramping muscle. And so a banana is not going to be a very effective treatment for muscle cramps. I kind of thought one of the ways that it worked was you talked about psychological earlier. You got to stop when you're eating a banana. I mean, you got to like stop what you're doing, open up your banana, start eating it. So that whole idea of just stopping the activity can also help you because you're not going to keep running. You got to stop for a moment. So granted, the banana may not help you, but just stopping whatever is causing the problem, maybe lightening the run. Sam, do you see cross-country folks who, if they're starting to get muscle cramps, should they, I mean, you don't want to stop completely, but should they slow it down a little bit? That's a hard question to completely answer because if it's happening in a practice, no problem. We'll take care of it. It's happening in the middle of a competition. There's a lot of other factors we're going to consider. I go out there and I start working on an athlete. Uh, Does that disqualify them because I'm working on them in the middle of the competition, right? Right after the competition, we can try and do something. If it's a track meet between events, maybe we can do something. But in the middle of a cross-country meet, uh, in the middle of a football game, maybe you can pull them out of the game and work on them in the sidelines. But working a lot of stretching, uh, we tried ice before. And like I said, I'm very much looking forward to Dr. Miller coming and, and talking with us as a group. All right. So I've got a question, Dr. Miller. Heat or ice, which is better when your muscles are cramping? Uh, when they're cramping, I would say probably ice. Ice tends to have a uh, pain-relieving effect. Um, the ice itself is probably not going to, say, break the cramp. As Sam mentioned, what you want to do when an athlete is cramping is the first thing is stretch them. Stretching will almost immediately or within a couple of seconds stop a muscle cramp from occurring. And once you have that cramp relieved, then you can get the athlete to the sideline and you can continue to work with them on replacing fluids or getting them some rest or getting some energy into them, those types of things. Um, But that would be another reason why we don't think cramping is related to dehydration because stretching doesn't add any fluid to the body and it doesn't add any sodium or potassium or any other electrolytes that you lose, and yet most of the time stretching will relieve a cramp. So by default... It shouldn't be related to the dehydration if stretching resolves it. You know, it's sort of in medicine. If what fixes you isn't what you think, then there's some correlation between those two. All right. Well, that's a lot of, this is a lot of great information that I think, kind of, I used to tell patients, go ahead, you're having cramps, have some bananas, not anymore. All right. Now there's a great conference that you're going to be at. And Sam, you know some more about this because it's the Hawaii Athletic Trainers Association annual symposium. This is coming up soon. Tell me more. Yeah, on Friday, June 1st, and Saturday, June 2nd, we've got our annual symposium, and uh, one of our featured speakers is uh, Dr. Dr. Miller. Miller, And that's part of why we want to be able to uh, talk with him a little bit here on the radio and uh, get some folks interested in it. Uh, And if both you're in Hawaii or beyond, um, we want you to consider it. Go to our website, hawaiiata.org, and click on the Education tab. And uh, do consider, for those who are athletic trainers, there are continuing education units available. And uh, we just want to encourage you to check it out. 
Well, and Dr. Miller, we had we know that you're going to be giving talks on exertional heat stroke, on exercise-associated muscle cramps, on facts and fables about muscle cramps. I hope I didn't give away all of your secrets that you're going to be sharing. I am certain there is a lot more that you're going to be talking about. Yes, I'm very honored and privileged to come out to Hawaii to give these talks, and I want to thank Sam and the rest of the folks in Hawaii. I can't wait to come and uh, share some information with you all. Well, we can't wait to have you here. So thanks so much for giving us a little preview. We appreciate that. I want to thank both of you for sharing your expertise with us today here on The Body Show. If you'd like to hear the show again, you can click on hawaiipublicradio.org. Follow the links. You can also find us on the HPR app. We were talking today to Sam Lee, Certified Athletic Trainer, Hawaii Baptist Academy, President of the Hawaii Athletic Trainers Association, and Dr. Kevin Miller. He's from Central Michigan University, heat illness management expert. You can find out more about the conference at the Athletic Trainer Association website, and we will have links to that on our Facebook page. Our engineer is David Chong. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. We'll see you next week. We're going to talk some more about health topics right here on The Body Show. Thank you.